welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I am your host, Brady Josephson, and today we are chatting with Chris Putnam Walkerly. She's an advisor to the world's leading philanthropists and for more than 20 years has been helping uh, wealthy families, high net worth donors, foundations, Fortune 500 companies, activists, celebrities give away their money. She's helped give away over a half a billion, with a B, billion dollars. She's also the author of a new book called Delusional Altruism, which is really the focus of the conversation today, where we are talking about what is this uh, delusion as it relates to altruism, specifically for philanthropists and funders. Uh, what are some of the hurdles that they experience? And she actually dives into a scarcity mindset, which I think is really interesting to hear about scarcity mindset on the funder side of the equation. And then we start talking about philanthropy in times of crisis, how have different funders and philanthropists responded to COVID-19 in particular, talk about some trends that she's seen over her 20 years in the space, uh, looking at different ways that funders are dispersing funds, how they're tracking impact, how they're working with nonprofits. And then we have a couple fun quick fire questions before wrapping up. But uh, it was a really interesting conversation. Anytime you can talk to someone who's helping give away money at this level, I think there's always some really interesting insights for those of us that are more on the getting as opposed to the giving side. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And as always, thank you for listening. <laughs> Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go I said welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go oh, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go oh, Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go It's just another Freak Show, here we go Hi Chris, thanks for coming on the show Hey Brady, thanks for having me all right. So uh, you get to help people give their money away, which sounds awesome. Uh, and it's amazing. And that's what really we're going to talk about today is, you know, how do you um, help philanthropists? What does philanthropy look like today in times of crises? But how did you get up in how did you get involved in this side of the philanthropic equation? How did you get started? How did you end up where you are? Uh, that's a great question. In fact, it's a question that Ed Asner once asked me, of all people, the actor, uh, where I found myself on a bus after getting arrested from a civil disobedience in Washington, D.C., and sitting <laughs> next to him. <laughs> and, it, you know, and it, it was a hard question to answer then. It's kind of a hard question to answer now, except that, you know, I through high school and college and my first jobs uh, after college, I just became very interested in what was happening around the world and injustices and wanted to use my, um, my work, my volunteerism, my own philanthropy in ways to address that. And um, I began working, I ended up getting a master's in social work in, in San Francisco and uh, thought, entered the program thinking I was gonna run a social service agency, but took a lot of classes in program evaluation and became really interested in how do you uh, improve how do you assess what's working and not working and make improvements? So I ended up working at Stanford University, evaluating youth and gang violence prevention programs. Hmm. And it was funded by the California Wellness Foundation, a health conversion foundation, in, obviously in California. And they were one of the few um, back then that was really thinking about youth violence less as a juvenile justice problem and more as a public health problem. And um, they really... Um, we're approaching it from a wide variety of perspectives and interventions. And it made me realize that 
you know, if you're a philanthropist or a foundation, you know, you certainly, you start with money, like you have the money, right? Mm-hmm. But if you also are really smart about it, bring in the right experts, uh, involve the people you're trying to help in coming up with the solutions and really think about, you know, how do we shift this and, and, sh- and change the tra- trajectory of this problem, you can really create a lot of change. They were also one of the few, you know, truly to this day that we're funding long-term. So they initially Mm -hmm. had a five-year and then it became a 10-year funding initiative. So they were really in it for the long haul. And then I began working at the the David and Lucille Packard Foundation and then started consulting after that. And it's been over 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So in over 20 years, I think you've helped give away like 500 million or billion? Yeah, by half a billion dollars, I've helped various donors <laughs> and philanthropists to allocate. That's an insane amount of, of money. Um, well, and, and so let's dive in. You wrote a book called Delusional Altruism, which is mm-hmm. an unbelievable title. So well done. Um, but can you unpack w- what that means? Like what is d- delusional altruism? And then uh, we'll kind of converse all throughout, you know, philanthropy and giving an impact and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. what is delusional altruism? Yeah, delusional altruism, you know, what it's not is, you know, saying that philanthropists are crazy or stupid, um, although some of your listeners might (laughs) think otherwise. (laughs) But, uh, you know, really, it's after advising funders uh, for over 20 years, I recognize that, you know, for the vast majority, they really are genuinely trying to make a difference, be altruistic, do the right thing, Hmm. but are getting in their own way and uh, becoming their own barrier to impact and not even realizing it. And often it's holding on to misguided beliefs and, um, you know, myths and ideas and practices that really aren't serving them well. And so the book, Mm. you know, it was written in some part, some regards out of frustration, you know, just uh, tired of of seeing these problems over and over again and, and seeing how they were preventing the impact that these funders wanted to create. So I wrote the book to help funders recognize, you know, how delusional altruism manifests in their giving and then what they can do differently to have a more, what I call transformational impact, which means, you know, really creating lasting change in whatever issue, cause, or community you care about. But to do that in a lot of ways by transforming yourself and as a funder and how you give, because I really believe mm. that how you give matters, just not just how much you give. Yeah. So uh, let's go into maybe some of the ways that that funders often experience uh, delusional altruism or what are some of those things that commonly stand in the way or how do they get in their own way? What are some of those things? Well, the biggest one really is a scarcity mindset and uh, or a poverty mindset you could think you could think of. And, you know, this is often surprising because if foundation leaders, corporate givers, high wealth individuals have anything, right, they have wealth. (laughs) Um, And you usually think of them as with an abundance of, you know, stuff. (laughs) Um, But too often, I think funders really have a scarcity mindset. And it's this belief that kind of maintaining a Spartan operation equates to delivering more value into the community or the cause. And so the scarcity mindset is for themselves as funders. It's kind of this misguided notion, often fueled from guilt, quite frankly, that, um, you know, we have to give all of our money to the people we're trying to help. We can't possibly invest in ourselves. Mm. And I really believe that to be, to have the greatest impact you want as a funder, you have to be the best philanthropist you can be. Uh, And by that, I don't mean, you know, buying fancy jets and yachts, 
<laughs> I mean, like investing in yourself and as in your own learning and your relationship development with nonprofits and understanding mm-hmm. your own implicit bias and racism in data gathering, strategy development, coaching, you know, whatever it might be, technology. Of course, we now recognize the importance of investing in technology, mm-hmm. but to really um, build your own capacity as a funder so that you can have a, a stronger impact. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you know, the scarcity mindset really shows up with nonprofits for, you know, and how they support nonprofits or don't support them. Again, you know, this kind of belief that uh, nonprofits should operate on a shoestring. We only dole out grants one year at a time. God forbid we give core operating support, you know, tightly restricting funding, um, you know, making nonprofits sort of jump through all these hoops and application processes taking six months to make a funding decision. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir in terms of your <laughs> listeners who have experienced a lot of this. But, you know, all of that, I, it's kind of, it's a scarcity mindset and it's often fear-based. Um, hmm. Fear, like what if we make the wrong decision? What if the money isn't spent well? So we're yeah. going to control it tightly. And it's not doing a service to anybody. Uh, you know, it forces nonprofits to not be able to make thoughtful long-term decisions because they don't know if they have the resources. So how do you hire the best talent if you can't guarantee paying them, you know, beyond a year or you can't really think strategically um, or you're kind of trying to get, you know, pro bono everything. Yeah. And that is not the, the best quality. And, you know, I think, you know, that the, the flip side of that is more of an abundance mindset and really thinking about to create the most change we need to invest in our people, our talent, you know, the strategy, the technology, evaluation, data, whatever it is to achieve the greatest outcomes. That's interesting because obviously the scarcity mentality side on the nonprofit is rampant and it's extremely limiting and um, hadn't really thought about donors having that mindset or large funders in particular having that type of mindset. But it makes sense in terms of how it comes out in the granting process or the funding process. You're right. Those are very scarcity mindset kind of mentalities where we have to control. And then it carries on to the nonprofit, right? If the funder is saying, here's here's our fears, and now it becomes the nonprofit's fears. And then it goes beyond even just that grant or that funding to all of their funding and kind of down it goes. So, I mean, we're we're already kind of getting off the rails, but this is what (laughs) what's so interesting to me is if nonprofits don't want this and it's not healthy and funders don't really want this and it's not really healthy. Why the heck is it like this? How can we not change this? No one wants this. Why is it this way? Help me out. (laughs) Well, it's kind of this vicious cycle, right? I mean, so, you know, the funder is giving a little bit of money, not enough money in little increments of time. And then the nonprofit, you know, experiences that and, and then asks for little bits of money for little bits of time. I remember doing, I was consulting for Charles Schwab's family foundation and I would be reviewing proposals that were coming in and people had, you know, hundred thousand dollar projects and they were asking for five or $10,000. Right. And I remember thinking, my God, ask for 50. We'll probably give it, <laughs> maybe we won't give you 50, but we'll give you 35 or 40. Right. But, you know, or we could just give you the 10 that you asked for. And it was it, it, it was that scarcity hmm. mindset from the nonprofit perspective of, oh, like we're almost too afraid to ask for what we really need and deserve, right. um, you know, out of what if they don't fund us as opposed to having a conversation. I mean, I think a lot of these hmm. problems can be solved with, you know, genuine, open, transparent, trusting conversations between the funders 
and the nonprofit leaders. And one thing I really advise nonprofits to recognize is that philanthropy needs you. You know, the, the mm. foundation can't achieve its mission without its nonprofit partners. Right. The funder isn't the one building low-income housing. The funder isn't the one providing, you know, domestic violence crisis counseling, right? Right. It's the nonprofit. So they they really need you. And they're your peer and your they should be your ally. And they have a lot more to offer besides funding, yeah. connections. You know, they can open doors, you know, make introductions, uh, share research, you know, share their bird's eye perspective on what's happening in the world. And so to really to 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 it's again a mindset, it's an abundance mindset for the nonprofit leader to recognize your value to the yeah. funder, what you're worth, what you deserve, and to have that like peer-to-peer conversation, let them know what's really going on and what you really need. Yeah. Do, do a lot of funders, you know, want that as well? Because uh, I, I think a lot of nonprofits, well, yes and no. I think a lot of nonprofits would be open to that. It sounds like a lot of time and energy, but it also seems like there's a lot of gates and barriers, right? Like just throw an FR, uh, an RFP over the wall through our, you know, form and maybe right. we'll get back to you. You know, that's still kind mm-hmm. of, so it doesn't seem like, they want a relationship or, you know what I mean? Is that more common now amongst funders to say like, no, we actually do want more conversation and relationship. And is that, is that a trend yeah, maybe I, that you're seeing? It, it is. I, I, there is a trend, uh, more trust-based philanthropy is a kind of a, a trend uh, and wanting to have those conversations. But, you know, quite frankly, it's one thing to say that you want that. It's another thing to actually deliver on that as a funder. Right. And, you know, what you don't want to do is ask the nonprofit to tell you what's really going wrong. And then they tell you, and then you say, well, we can't, that's too messy. We can't fund it. You know, <laughs> right. You know, you want to, you want your nonprofit to come to you in a crisis and say, we're having a succession issue, or we just lost our biggest donor or, you know, something happened. Like we need your help. And as a funder, what you should want to do is step in and really help them through the crisis, not take a kind of wait and see. Well, we'll wait and see if you're, you know, how the new, how the next executive director handles this. And if right. like at that point, the nonprofit's like imploding and that's not very helpful. But, you know, I think to, to one of your earlier questions is why does this happen? Uh, you know, we'd all be surprised to realize how few r- rules and regulations foundations actually have to follow. I mean, certainly right. they have to, there's tax law and reporting requirements and things like that, but it's actually very little and right. everything else the funder has created like out of nowhere, you know, or out of, they followed some other best practice. I mean, everything yeah. like the, the funding guidelines, the RFPs, the deadlines, the forms, the applications, the right. widow fund capital project, everything like they made up. I mean, not like randomly, but you know, theoretically for a good reason, but often it's like, it's not really mindful. <laughs> And or it might have made sense ten years ago, but it doesn't make any sense now. Yes, or totally. Poli- you know, it's like bureaucracy has kind of grown up like black mold in the organization. It's just kind of taken over, and and you don't yeah. realize it until it's while well, it's happening. So I think um, you know many many funders need to. Uh, I call it look under your own hood. One of the things I talk about in the delusional altruism book is to really think about how how we've created too many steps, too many processes and look under your hood to see what are all the blockages and how do you rectify them? It isn't that complicated. You know, how can you speed things up? How can you remove a lot of the restrictions? 
And, you know, it shouldn't take five people to approve a $500 grant, but that happens yeah. a lot. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot of that. Yeah. This, again, the parallels, I think, between the funder world and the fundraising world is is really interesting because it's it seems similar where, you know, philanthropy itself was very unregulated up into, you know, 60s, 70s and, and the fundraising world, too. Right. It's not it wasn't very professional. It was, you know, kind of grassrootsy mm-hmm. and and all mm-hmm. over. And then we had this rampant kind of professionalization of infrastructure and, you know, tax codes and professionalization, which was great, especially at that time period, like how fundraising as a profession became a thing. And, you know, more and more money was raised. But through that, to your point, some of the funding that all this bureaucracy and all these things that we used to do just has continued on. And it continues on today in fundraising even is like, well, why do you do that? Well, mm-hmm. this is like, how we used to do it or how I was taught it's, to do it's it. It's how it's done, right? It's how it's done. Yeah. And it <laughs> seems very much like, well, if, if it's not working for us now, then why should we keep doing it? You know, and maybe we're at this inflection point on both sides, funder and fundraising, where we kind of need to really re-examine a lot of what we're doing. Because a lot of it does seem quite ineffective, if not broken. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking of a friend who was the number two person at a foundation and that was her only foundation job. And that foundation had a, a really valued conducting site visits with their nonprofit applicants. So they had like quarterly, uh, you know, proposals that were coming in on a quarterly basis. And if if the nonprofit like met some basic criteria, it got a site visit. So like they would do 20 site visits every quarter. And it was a big production. They didn't they'd engage their board. Board members were expected to come. Wow. All of this foundation staff were expected to attend some. And, you know, this was a big scheduling thing. It took like a month. It was a big deal, but they valued it. It was how they were building their relationships and understanding the community. And they had a whole system. Well, that number two person, my friend went to go become the CEO of another, of a new foundation. And so that was her second foundation job. And it was, it was a brand new foundation. So it was her and like a part-time person and a brand new board Hmm. who didn't really know much about philanthropy. (laughs) And so, you know, her response was, well, I have to conduct site visits. Like we were talking and she's right. like, I have to figure, and how will I do it? Because there's only like one and a half, one and a half of us and our board doesn't know anything about this. And I paused and I said, you know, you don't actually have to conduct site visits. Uh-huh. And she said, <laughs> I don't, you know, she had no idea. She right. just thought that was like the law, like that was what was required, you know? Right. And right. I said, no, you don't have to conduct them at all. Or if you do, you can conduct a few or they can be really simple or, you know, whatever. And she was so relieved. Like she really didn't know. And she, I mean, super smart, talented person. But right. So I think these that's kind of how it happens. It's like you right. worked at one organization and so you assume the practices should carry forward or you ask your colleagues how they do it. And so you just kind of adopt those practices. And and often we don't realize, like, what are we actually trying to accomplish and what's the fastest way to accomplish it? And that should be your approach. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's really, really interesting. Um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that everyone faces, but I'm sure you must face as well with, you know, institutional or large funders is you talk about like transformational giving or maximizing impact. Like those are kind of nebulous type, you know, terms. So how, if you want to achieve the greatest, you know, impact, you have to first define impact. So how do you go about trying to define, you know, impact for your, your clients and just philanthropists at, at large? Like, how do you, go about actually formulating that? Well, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a great question. And I actually, I always start with strategy. So I, I help hmm. my clients think about 
you know, what are they trying to accomplish like in the next year, not necessarily even the next 20 years, but you know, you have your mission, your vision, your values. So what are you trying to, what's the change you want to create in the world? What kind of impact do you want to have in the next 12 months? What kind of philanthropist do you want to be? Where are you today? And how do you get from where you are today to where you want to be as quickly as possible? And so, you know, those kinds of conversations often um, revolve around impact. So, you know, sometimes it's, you know, even starting with like what causes we care about, you know, a lot of, I mean, some Mm -hmm. funders come to this with clarity on, we want to address childhood brain cancer, or, you know, we've had somebody who experienced substance abuse in their life. We want them, you know, we want to support that issue. And others are more like generalists or they care about a lot of things or they're not really Mm. sure or they're contending with multiple family members and differing viewpoints. So part of it is, you know, starting with even like what cause or issue do you care about or what community do you care about? And then kind of helping them identify through, you know, often through data, you know, what's what are the needs, what's actually happening on that issue and what kind of change do you want? And and it kind of depends, right, because let's just pick, um, say early childhood education. Well, what's the impact that you want to have is the impact that you want, you know, quite frankly, better prenatal care so that children are born healthier and their brains are better developed and they haven't experienced trauma. Right. Right. So that could be the impact or is it being ready to read by kindergarten? And, and even then, like, what is that impact? Is that because you've gotten parents to read to their kids or is that because Mm -hmm. there's early childhood access to high quality early childhood education or is the impact you know you want kids to be graduating from college or high school and then college or you know so it kind of depends and there and you kind of have to get used to there's no necessarily right or wrong answer or one way to approach it 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 really is a combination i think of data like what's the actual need what are the best practices and showing us about what works and passion and interest of the funder or the collaborative or whatever, you know, is happening because some things are more of interest. Uh, and that's an, it's an important factor to, to include because you want the donor to continue giving over time. And so it's important for them to be passionate, excited and building momentum and enthusiasm. Yeah, of course you want them to be engaged and, and have that <laughs> enthusiasm. So, um, The the good answer there was like, there is no one answer. And that's what everyone (laughs) always has. And I think just even recognizing that is quite freeing for people, right, who are Mm -hmm. constantly pursuing, you know, Mm -hmm. I got to figure out this exact ROI, but the ROI for you and like to your point, even if you're just trying to do childhood education, there's so many different strategies and you would, Mm -hmm. um, you know, measure those very differently, but they're all trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So to uniform that for everyone, it's just, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. I think that's why we have struggled and will always struggle with this kind of like one line definition of, Mm -hmm. of impact. But it seems like, like right now we're still in, you know, COVID worlds and probably just starting to enter more of the the harsh realities of what COVID-19 means uh, moving forward. It seems like this is a huge opportunity to have a massive impact for funders, right? Where average people are losing their jobs, losing their wealth, whereas foundations or large funders in theory uh, are well positioned to kind of, you know, come to the rescue and give more than their 5%. Is that something that you see happening? Is that something that goes through funders' minds? Like how do they respond in these times of crisis? Is it, that scarcity mentality sink in and they kind of operate the same as nonprofits or do they see this as, no, this is, you know, 
our time to shine or does it vary? It varies. So I found there's five different ways that funders are responding in a crisis. Um, and one is uh, they go into hiding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the ghost. And, and a second related one is uh, taking a wait and see approach. So the ones that are in hiding, I mean, it's fascinating. Hmm. There's a, a recent study came out uh, about billionaires, the world's billionaires, and it found that uh, it, it actually said in a really positive way, like over 10% of the world's billionaires have given money in response to COVID or pledged. And my reaction was that means 90% haven't, you know, like, <laughs> right. where totally. are they? And what's wrong with them? So, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are just like in hiding, like you don't, you don't know where they are. They're not, hmm. they're not out and about, they're not helping, they're not giving. Um, is that because they're overwhelmed? They're in fear, they're in shock, who knows? Um, but I, that's one response. And I think it's important to recognize that one because, you know, the headlines we see in like the Chronicle of Philanthropy and other publications are all the funders that are doing amazing things, of which right. there are a lot. And I'll get to those in a second. But there's no story about the ones that are in hiding <laughs> because we don't know where they are. Right. Uh, there's also a lot of folks that are taking a wait and see approach, um, which is, you know, so I talked to one CEO of a foundation in, let's say, early April or late March uh, when COVID hit and asked how are they responding and he said i'm really disappointed in my board because um their approach is well we have our next board retreat scheduled in september let's just wait until then we'll reconvene the board and then we'll figure out how we want to respond like when this right. whole thing shakes out and you know my god <laughs> like, you know there's cry there's a, this is a crisis <laughs> right. and you want <laughs> you want people to respond in real time um, and so there are, so the next, that's two, the hiders and then the wait and seers. And then the third is, you know, people that are giving. So their response mm. is like, let's just give, which is great. And these are the people who are, um, you know, giving, making emergency grants, giving to the local food, you know, pantries and shelters and homeless shelters and supporting the rapid responders and the um, health care system, uh, education, et cetera. Um, rapid response funds. I mean, a, a I don't know, like 500 rapid response funds were created in response to COVID just in this country, uh, which is really amazing. And so the people, uh, you know, were rapidly moved. I mean, philanthropists, the ones that are taking action are working, honestly, like 60 hour weeks right? Uh, and have been. Um, and then a lot are, and then the, the fourth is um, those who have adapted. So they've really adapted how they're giving in the immediate term. So those are the ones that um, immediately took, you know, existing grantees and said, I don't care what you were funded to do. You are now allowed to use the money for whatever you think you need to do. Like we trust you, nonprofit leader, use the money however you see fit. And and then they also um, removed a lot of the, you know, other kind of expectations and deadlines. Like, don't worry about, like hmm. one of my clients is the Moses Taylor Foundation in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And they said, you know, don't worry about your final report when this is all over and, you know, we thought that would be sooner than it actually is going to be <laughs> right. when this is all over, like we'll call you and we'll take the notes and write your report for you. Cause you're too busy, which is really cool. Um, yeah. others, you know, doubled, you know, the, the Libra foundation, uh, in Silicon Valley, like immediately doubled their payout for the year. Um, Robert Sterling Clark foundation in New York gave all other grantees an additional year of funding, you know, no application cool. just did it. So that's awesome. And I really hope that a lot of these practices stick um, when things calm down. 
But I think the ones uh, in kind of the fifth category are the ones that are truly transformational. And they're the ones that are not only adapting to the change, but increasing their agility. And, you know, agility really means you're looking out ahead and you're seeing the challenges and the opportunities coming at you and you're navigating around them or you're seizing them to generate new innovations or take advantage of, you know, take advantage mm. of the problem. Like how do we turn this in our favor and make it work for us? Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that are innovating, um, you know, often generating new partnerships on the fly. So uh, I think those are the ones that are going to really have a more transformational impact on in the long term. Yeah, no, that's that's I like how you, um, you know, you broke those down and talked about the hiders and because uh, <laughs> you don't you don't hear about those at all. Um, no. and it seems, it seems to be like a common thread that last group, I mean, just even the little bits that I've read, the people that are most, you know, agile and transformational have a lot better sense of empathy or understanding of the nonprofit and what they're actually going through. That's gotta be fundamental to being able to adapt. If you can't adapt, if you don't know what their problems are, right. Or, you know, if you, if you go into, you know, hiding or wait and see, then you could argue, do you really have an understanding of what that nonprofit is going through right now? Because if you're a partner of theirs and you know what they're going through right now, you probably wouldn't just be, you know, waiting until your next board meeting. Right. So it's again, it's it's similar to the average donor. The kind of the sense of empathy is mm-hmm. is absolutely, you know, uh, critical. So that's kind of interesting. That stands out. Here's a side question. Kind of random. Is there a way for nonprofits to rate foundations? You know, like we've got GuideStar and Watchdog Watchdog agencies. And when you were talking, I was just thinking, what are the repercussions if you're a crappy funder? You know, like if you're terrible to work with and you go in hiding and you, you red tape and like, are there any real repercussions? Is anyone saying this is a bad funder or don't get funding from them? Like, is that part of the problem? Is there is there any recourse for nonprofits when they have bad funding experiences? That's a great question. That would be a great project. Not that I'm aware of. Mm-mm. Well, that we should I mean, build I think it. There's, I think, <laughs> right. You know, I, I think the fear factor is so great. I, it'd be interesting to see if something like that got traction and really got off the ground, like how you would really guarantee anonymity. And, you know, if you really could, um, because, you know, of course, people are, and this is the power dynamic in philanthropy, right? The, right. the giver gives and the receiver receives and you know, somebody holds the power pretty clearly in that relationship and it's scary, you know, as a nonprofit yeah. to, um, to share publicly or even privately, you know, what you think is wrong because you're afraid you'll lose the money or you'll get a bad reputation or whatever it is. Right. But, but, you know, increasingly there are examples of nonprofits that are doing that. Um, I think especially now, you know, one of the, I think great opportunities we have right now is to, address systemic racism in this country and around the world, you know, there's such a huge opening and opportunity um, given the horrific events that we've experienced, well, for a long, for, you know, 400 years, but, you know, that have come to light more recently and mm-hmm. the attention that's been drawn. Um, and a lot of groundwork that's been laid uh, in the past five years with a focus on racial equity and equity and inclusion and diversity and philanthropy so there's a lot more readiness, awareness, understanding, strategy, resources, you know, consultants, like, you know, there's a lot of capacity in the field, I think, to, to an understanding to address this. And there's a lot of great organizations like ABFI, um, which is formerly the Association of Black Foundation Executives, and, and PolicyLink, and a lot of other organizations mm-hmm. that are really seizing on this time 
and organizing people to, um, you know, really fund Black-led organizations, people of color-led nonprofits, and um, really invest in ending and reducing systemic racism and improving people's awareness and understanding. And so, you know, like with COVID, I mean, this, these crises are showing us laying bare these problems and, right. you know, these problems are, are too big not to solve, you know, and I think there's a lot of readiness and appetite in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector to tackle them. Yeah. Well, it'll be very interesting to see, um, how both COVID and obviously the, the, the things that you were talking about there, like what actually happens three years from now, you know, two years from now, I think that's, that's a lot of people's initial, uh, concern is like, yeah, it's easy to, to do something right now, especially when it doesn't cost you much, but what about, you know, two years from now, three years from now, will you have, you know, more lean, uh, funding, um, you know, processes two years from now or is it going to go back to normal are you still going to be interested in supporting leaders of color and and organizations that are led by people Mm -hmm. of color or is that going to be kind of you know a passe thing at that point so it's going to be really interesting to see uh you know what happens in the future and obviously hopefully neither of those things uh go away hopefully both of those things are here to stay um well we can talk about all kinds of different things (laughs) from here but i want to try to to wrap things up in a little bit so maybe on a real practical level, if, if someone's listening and they're just a, a donor, maybe not like a, a huge philanthropist, and that is one of the key things in your book is saying, look, whether you give, you know, 10 or 10,000 or 10 million, you know, everyone is a philanthropist and everyone can mm-hmm. share in some of these things, which I think is really uh, a key point. You know, it's not just like, oh, them and us. Um, so if you're a donor or philanthropist of, of any size, what are a couple maybe like quick tips about giving today or things that they should think about? Mm-hmm. Well, a couple thoughts. One is, you know, in general, if it's a crisis or it's not a crisis, I think having clarity on your strategy is really important. And again, for me, that is not a spending a year doing a bunch of research and then another year developing a plan and then, mm-hmm. you know, six more months graphically designing it. I mean, <laughs> tomorrow or like next week, you know, a- asking yourselves a few key questions. Who do we want to be a year from now? What kind of impact do we want to be having a year from now? Where are we today? And what are the three most important things we need to do to get from where we are today to where we want to be? Mm-hmm. And the reason why this is so important, especially during a crisis, is it just it brings clarity and focus at a time when the you know the, we feel like every day like the rug's been pulling up from underneath us, and it's hard to focus because there's so much going on. Right. But it really you know strategy to me is a decision making framework that we can use every day. Um, to guide day-to-day decisions, like should we fund this organization or there's this new, you know, initiative in our community, should we get on board or um, there's a new need we've heard about, do we support it? You can look at your strategy and say, well, is this going to help us get there or is it going to take us off course? And um, it can help you decide if these are the three most important things to do, but like how are we going to do them and who's responsible? So that's one. Mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, secondly, like... um, to borrow from another book title, but like lean in. So like lean into your nonprofit organizations and partners and build relationships. I mean, or if you don't have any, you don't even know where to start. Like once you figure out what, you know, what causes you might care about, contact those nonprofits and have conversations and build relationships with them that are trusting and let them know, you know, here's what I'm interested in doing. I don't know if I'll fund you, but I'd like to learn more, whatever it is. 
just be mm -hmm. honest and open and transparent and engaging and stick with them over time. Uh, and then the third, I would say, is to really um, embrace that abundance mindset and recognize that some of the most valuable ways you can help your nonprofits is to provide them with funding for all that other stuff, you know, mm -hmm. like think of how beneficial helping a nonprofit conduct an evaluation might be or mm. investing in technology or, you know, some training or like helping them find their next CFO, like whatever it might be. Yeah. That can make all the difference. And your little bit of funding, you know, maybe that's $3,000. You know what I mean? That like for yeah. that training that they really need or that executive coach they need, but that's going to catapult that organization to the next level. And so your investment can really have a huge ROI. Yeah, no, that that's, that's hugely important. Um, and something that not a lot of, you know, people think about is how do I multiply, not just, you know, maximize. And I think that's a really, really key question. Well, those are some really good tips. Um, let's move into like a, a quick fire round and then, and then we'll wrap up. So, yes. um, a little bit more about, we'll find out more about you and kind of, uh, who you are through these maybe. <laughs> so what's, what's like a, a favorite book that you've read, you know, recently or maybe currently reading? Besides mine, um, which I have to read, I have to reread. Like I wrote the thing and then I was like, I, it published. And then I thought, well, I probably should reread it to remember what I wrote. <laughs> um, you know, a book that I just read that I think your readers will really like is called How to Build a Story Brand. Hmm. And it's a whole framework around messaging for businesses or nonprofits or anybody that mm -hmm. really is, is uh, messaging through a story mm -hmm. and through using um, kind of thinking of your whoever you're working with is the hero and you're the guide and your hero has a problem and all these things. But it's a super practical book for anyone that's struggling with communication, like trying to reach your donors and get the, getting them to give you money. Yeah. So that's a good one. Good. Yeah. No, and that is really good. I think a lot of storytelling has been a buzzword in the nonprofit space for a long time, but I don't think we've really understood why story is important. People just mm -hmm. like throw a story out and think it'll work, mm -hmm. but it's really about that structure and having conflict. So I know uh, story brands big on that, which is great. Okay. Um, you've got one night. The only thing you can do is binge watch one show. Uh, what is it? Law and order. Ooh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Law and order, like the original, not like all the crazy variants of uh, Law, and Law and order, the original or Law and order SVU. Okay. Good answer. Good answer. Yes. Um, what's a favorite organization or two of, of yours? Uh, it could be on the foundation side. It could be on the nonprofit side. I know it's like choosing, you know, amongst your of your favorite amongst your children, but uh, or an organization that you've seen that just, you think is just doing really great work. Uh, you know, one organization I've been working with for a long time is Barrios Unidos in Santa Cruz, California. So this is an organization, Latino organization that does, um, so tries to end youth violence. So that was actually one of the groups we evaluated back when I was working at Stanford. Um, and also has been doing a lot of work trying in the prison system in California and really trying mm. to reform the prisons and help uh, prisoners upon reentry. And, you know, some of the work <clears throat> that like the very tireless work that they've been doing for decades um, is really coming to light right now and the importance of, mm. of their efforts and, um, you know, really uh, building support for the Latino community, the immigrant community, and, uh, you know, just recognizing a lot of the struggles that people have and and the ways that they can be supported in ways that are culturally relevant and meaningful. Yeah. 
No, that's great. And it, it's a good point, too. Of like, you don't always know the, the true how important your work that you're currently doing is will be in the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Policies change. Crises happen. And the thing that you've been working on, which was important now, is, you know, unbelievably important. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible to know. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Last one. It's it's Friday at 4 p.m. It's been a long week. Uh, what are you drinking? Glass of wine. White or red? Both. <laughs> 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 good, <laughs> good answer. That's uh, good. I like it. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing so much of your, you know, wealth of experience and expertise in uh, talking a little bit more about your book. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, your work, and your book, where can they do so? Yeah, there's a couple things. One is they can order a copy of the book, which is also available with bulk discounts uh, at delusionalaltruism.com. And um, you can order it on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, et cetera. And all the links are right there. And there's also a free uh, downloadable discussion guide for folks who want to, you know, read it with their teams. And, um, you know, it's very action oriented. And then I also would invite any of your read- listeners to, um, if they'd like, if any of these ideas were helpful and they'd want to learn more or see if there's ways that I can help them, um, I am offering free 45-minute Zoom consultation calls, and they can go to sixcrisismistakes.com. Excuse me. They can go to speakwithchris.com and uh, speakwithchris, chris with a K.com, and um, schedule a call. And, you know, I'd be happy to talk about any of these ideas, about strategy, about philanthropy. It's one of the ways that I'm trying to give back and help as many nonprofits and foundation leaders as I can during this crisis. And both of those are part of my website so they can, you know, find me there as well. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to share that out. And uh, another free resource that you mentioned previously, we'll make sure that that gets out as well. (laughs) So thank you again for uh, coming on and sharing your expertise and hopefully people take you up on that and you'll be having many conversations about these very issues with uh, other nonprofits and funders. Yes. Thank you very much for your podcast. This has been fun. All right. Uh, Have a good one. Thanks, you too. Hi again, this is Brady, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to listen to all future episodes or maybe go back and listen to some of our past episodes, you can do so by going to generosityfreakshow.com, or you can search The Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, if you have any questions or a suggested guest, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at podcast at nextafter.com. That's podcast at nextafter.com. And if you want to find out more about this vision to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world and what we're doing at Next After in terms of research, resources, and training, you can find out more at nextafter.com. That's nextafter.com. Thank you very much for listening. And finally, I have to say thank you to Nathan Hill, our producer and mixologist. This would not be possible without him. So thank you, Nathan. And thank you once again for listening. 